Hello, I'm Paul Leeworthy. Welcome to the Connecting Memories podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, I'm Paul Leeworthy, and I'm joined today by cognitive philosopher Professor John Sutton. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you, Paul. I'm delighted to be here. In this podcast series, I'm talking to leading academics about memory. Memory is a term that is at present more popular than ever in academic research. It is invoked frequently in many academic disciplines and across those contexts it is used to mean very different things. As well as asking my guest speakers to share some of their latest research with us, I ask each of them, what does memory mean in the context of their research, whose memory do they study, and how? As I've said in the other episodes, the decision to launch this podcast series was in part taken in response to the lockdown that many of us find ourselves in as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. My aim is that the podcast will provide a virtual space for scholars interested in memory, both those who have already been involved with the Connecting Memories Initiative and those who are new to it, to congregate and engage with each other's thinking about memory. The format of each episode, as listeners to previous podcasts will be aware, consists in three parts. In the opening segment, I ask my guest speaker to say a little bit about how they approach memory and what the term means to them and in their research. In the second section, they give a shortish talk or micro-lecture, presenting some of their latest research. And in the last part of the podcast, I ask a few questions about that talk. And with that, it's time to introduce today's guest speaker. Born and schooled in Scotland, John Sutton read classics at New College Oxford, going on to do a PhD in philosophy at the University of Sydney. Shortly before submitting his PhD, John took up a role as lecturer in philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney in 1992. He left the post to pursue postdocs at UC Los Angeles and Sydney University, returning to the post as lecturer in philosophy at Macquarie in 1998, and then moving in 2008 from philosophy to the Macquarie Centre for Cognitive Science, where he became professor. Professor Sutton has held many visiting fellowships, including at Edinburgh, UC San Diego and Warwick, as well as King's College London and the Institute of Philosophy in London. Professor John Sutton has published extensively, with much of his research relating to memory and the history of theories of memory. His more than 100 journal articles and book chapters, many written in collaboration with others, have explored a vast range of topics, bringing the study of brain, body and culture together. To name just a few of the most frequently cited among them, I might mention his monograph, Philosophy and Memory Traces, Descartes, to Connectionism, published in 1998, or the articles The Psychology of Memory, Extended Cognition and Socially Distributed Remembering from 2010, and A Conceptual and Empirical Framework for the Social Distribution of Cognition, The Case of Memory from 2008. As well as being a co-founder of the journal Memory Studies, of which he was one of the joint editors until 2017, John is joint editor of two Palgrave Macmillan book series, one on memory studies and one on cognitive science. John has co-edited many volumes, including Collaborative Remembering, Theories, Research and Applications, which came out in 2018. And he's currently editing the first full English translation of Maurice Halbach's book, Les Cadres Sociaux de la Mémoire, The Social Frameworks of Memory. And co-editing a volume called Ecologies of Skill, Collaborative Embodied Performance with Kath Bicknell. Thanks so much for joining me on the Connecting Memories podcast, John. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Paul. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you. So to get us started, I'd like to begin with the questions that I've been asking each speaker that I have on the show. Could you please tell us a bit about your research and how memory features in it, as well as about your approach to studying memory? Yeah, Paul, I'm interested in far too many bits of the diverse area of memory research. Um, It keeps me busy and has done for many years. It really struck me about um, being invited to speak on your podcast that uh, the Connecting Memories podcast is just perfect for me. Way, way back, my own PhD thesis was actually called Connecting Memory Traces, a kind of cousin, I guess, of of your podcast and and project. So at that point, I was interested in memory from primarily a historical point of view. I was looking at memory in the history of philosophy, the history of neuroscience, Um, especially at the 17th century and that great evil demon of modern philosophy, René Descartes, who I tried to kind of revivify or or reanimate with a slightly more positive spin. 
but always I've been interested in memory from uh, a contemporary point of view too, looking at the, the cognitive theory, the nature of memory in, in brain and cognition and trying to bring uh, the cognitive sciences together with the social sciences and the humanities. And as your kind introduction showed, you know, I started as a humanities researcher interested in classics and history and literature and have just sort of shifted gradually over the years um, through philosophy of mind um, and eventually for the last, I guess it's 12 years now, working in a cognitive science department myself and um, engaged in collaborative research in a range of areas um, from experimental psychology through to more ethnographic work. So to try to answer your question a, a little bit, I try to work with a very um, pluralist conception of memory. Um, it has many different forms and we can be interested in one single aspect of memory. I care about personal memory, for example, but I also care about shared or collaborative recall, which is what I'll be talking about in, in the lecture tonight primarily, but also about embodied memory, the kind of, of memory that we have when we're riding a bike or exercising skills like learning and, and playing a musical instrument or, or, or playing sport. By separating these different kinds of memory out, we can ask what to me are the interesting questions about how they fit together in real life, in, in, in practice. And memory kind of gets everywhere. As a podcast like this makes clear, there are so many different approaches to memory across different disciplines, many real phenomena of remembering in our current social lives. And I guess I'm interested in how they fit together um, at every level, from low-level sciences of uh, synaptic transmission in the brain to ordinary personal-level understandings of how I remember my first kiss and the things that I care about in my life. But then also on a larger scale, the um, issues of memory that come up in cultural memory studies and about collective memory too. So memory doesn't stay in its own boundaries. It's always kind of squeezing out. It's not neatly bounded. And that's a joy, right? If we can accept the diversity of the of the phenomena. And it's, it's always in use, even when it's not our explicit topic. So very few academic disciplines actually don't have some implication or something to do with memory. And this can be frustrating, but it's also a joy, right? Of being able to get in there and look at the extraordinary array of work on memory across the disciplines. Thank you, John. And indeed, the dual frustrations uh, and joys of that variety is very much part of what's motivated these podcasts and the Connecting Memories Initiative. We're now going to hear more from Professor Sutton as he delivers a paper entitled Ecologies of Remembering. Part one, Morris Halbach's Collective Memory and Learning to Remember. One current project that thrills me greatly is being involved in publishing new editions of the major works on memory by the great Maurice Halvax, the French sociologist who is often, perhaps too often, cited as the founding father of memory studies. While my colleagues Sarah Danes and Jeff Olick move ahead on new editions of Halvax's later works on collective memory, I'm working with translators Barnaby Hutchins and Charles Wolfe, editing the first ever full English translation of Halvax's great 1925 book, Le Cadre Socio de la Mémoire, The Social Frameworks of Memory. Parts of this book were translated into English by Louis Kozer in a 1992 volume, which Kozer titled On Collective Memory, and which is very widely cited, if not perhaps always so widely read. But Kozer cut almost all of the first four chapters of Halbach's work, which he, as a certain kind of sociologist, saw as largely preparatory for the rest of the book which looks at frameworks of remembering in the family, in religious groups, and within social classes. Kozo cut, or some might say butchered, 145 pages of the French edition into only 13 pages in English. Halvac's chapters on dreams and memory, on memory and language, and on the reconstruction and localization of the past are all but unknown in English, as is his deep engagement with the psychology and neuroscience of his time. As Sarah Ginsberger has argued, the language barrier and these issues about editions and translations are not the only explanations of pervasive misinterpretation of Halvax in English language memory scholarship. But this situation has definitely not helped. Halvax is too often wrongly seen as operating with a rigid or mystical notion of the group, with a conception of individuals as passive recipients with no autonomy of social norms of having a conception of collective memory curiously disconnected from the thought processes of any particular person. 
This has led to Anglophone researchers either mounting campaigns to write the individual back into memory studies, or treating notions of collective, social, or group memory as mere metaphors. More broadly, lack of access to Halvak's insistently interdisciplinary approach to memory, exploring the rich space between individual memory phenomena and social memory phenomena, has entrenched divisions between cognitive and social approaches, between psychological and cultural disciplines in memory studies. Halvaks might well today have been a cognitive scientist. In particular, it's my anachronistic bet that he would be working with ideas about remembering as operating in rich and diverse distributed cognitive ecologies, alongside the increasingly anti-individualist movements that emerged within cognitive theory from the 1980s onwards. Remembering is not in the head. Neural processes are one among many heterogeneous bodily, affective, social, material, and environmental resources involved in remembering. Remembering is a constructive activity and an interpersonal skill. It develops in social interaction and shared attention. Havak's first chapter on dreams and memory, for example, argues against the individualism of much of the psychology of his day. If memory was a purely internal affair, not anchored in and reliant on social frameworks, what we remember, Havax argues, would be as fragmentary, unmoored, incomplete and shrouded as our dreams really are. But remembering is not like dreaming, Havax says, because it's a sophisticated socio-cognitive achievement. We have to learn to remember, always doing so within social frameworks. Young children's early mental lives are much more like that of the dreamer. Our psychological nature, therefore, is intrinsically both social and cultural. Our minds and our memory soak in from the world. At a certain level of abstraction, I suggest this is the truth about memory. And our best current sciences, from dynamic cognitive neuroscience, through developmental and cognitive psychology, to ethnographic and social scientific inquiry, into the complex ecologies of memory in real social worlds, all support this broad picture. Our basic capacities for remembering, imagining, and what's often called mental time travel can be deployed or knitted together in a range of ways. As children, we learn the skills of personal remembering in slow, multi-staged processes of enculturation involving many cognitive, emotional, interpersonal, and narrative resources. Social interaction shapes children's emerging capacity for joint attention to the shared past. The norms, practices, and abilities that later ground spontaneous personal memory have soaked in from and through the child's social and cultural setting. As a result, there's substantial variation with regard to children's memories in just what skills are learned and in the ways they are deployed. Children acquire specific styles of reminiscence more or less elaborative, for example, more or less self-focused, more or less emotionally involved, and so on, in complex interaction over time with their adult carers and their peers, as is demonstrated now by longitudinal studies in the work of Elaine Reese and others of the mutual influences of parents and children on each other's memory practices. This rich socio-cultural scaffolding of children's memory, which is there from the start, across nonverbal as well as narrative modes of accessing the past, goes all the way down. The scaffolding doesn't fade or get dismantled over time. It shifts and transforms. Our adult memory remains entangled in multiple forms of scaffolding, technological, material, environmental, cultural, institutional, even as we learn to latch onto wider arrays of assembled and systemic resources in our socially and digitally mediated worlds. In seeking to use this picture to drive an insistently interdisciplinary agenda of our own in memory research, our research team has brought this picture of memory as a diverse, open, constructive, interactive series of practices into contact with independent experimental research traditions in cognitive psychology. So, in the next full section of this micro lecture, I'm going to offer a snapshot of our most recent work, taking an external and ethnographic eye on a long tradition of empirical studies of how people remember in practice. The research on collaborative recall and how people share memories has been done over 15 years or so with my psychologist colleagues Amanda Barnier and Celia Harris 
and our team. But this new ethnographic work and the focus on one particular moment in one study is done in collaboration with my colleague Kath Bicknell, who comes to cognitive theory from a very different academic background in performance studies and elite sport. So part two of this talk, written in collaboration with Kath Bicknell, is on collaborative remembering in everyday life. Howard and Fran sit next to each other on an old, comfy, two-seater couch in their home. Tom, one of the researchers, sits facing them, Amanda behind them, off to their right at a table. The ethnographer, Kath, sits on the ground off to their left. Howard is on Fran's right, fairly rigid, his feet flat on the floor, hands crossed in his lap. She relaxes into the back of the couch. Her left foot is crossed over her right, jiggling. It could be nervous energy or anxiety. The fidget shifts to her hand or playing with her glasses or rubbing her arm, a way of concentrating during the testing or a way of marking time. They both want to do well. They do what they can to keep their focus on the tasks. After the first tests, remembering word lists, Tom asks the couple to work together to name as many states in the USA as they can in four minutes. All three of them share a smile. It's not the first time they've shared a moment like this. Fran and Howard look out and across, keeping each other in their peripheral vision. She appears poised, happy to let him start. He takes a breath. New York and Pennsylvania, he says, speaking to no one in particular, but loud enough to be heard by all. Fran starts. Whisk, whisk, she looks at Howard, conferring. Wisconsin? Huh? He says, looking towards her. I'm working down the East Coast, he says. They both smile and laugh. His is a quiet chuckle. She's more expressive. It feels a bit like they're sharing a joke, as if it's typical he'd have some strategy like that. Oh, sorry, she says, laughing playfully and touching him on the arm. No, you go. She leans back into the couch again, looking up and away from him, focused, monitoring, trying not to intrude. We watched a lot of this on television last week. Howard says to Tom, who doesn't, who can't, react, due to the protocols established for these tests. Last week was the Trump-Clinton election. So, Howard continues, North Carolina, South Carolina, Ohio, from Fran, it is not acknowledged by Howard, Kentucky, Florida, oh, Ohio, what's that river down there in New Orleans, that river that runs up from there, he says. Fran's not sure. Her arms and legs are crossed, and she holds her glasses on her chin. It's as though part of her wants to say other things, and part of her is holding it all in. She comes up with the odd name, but he's more confident. She sometimes refers to people or events. He sticks to the task more directly, naming states, talking in terms of directions and geographical features. What are those ones in the middle, he says, mentioning lakes. The ones where they voted for Trump she says, overlapping him, his ha her hand motioning in a circle in front of her. They keep persisting, talking quietly as the gaps between answers get longer. Well, that's four minutes. It's a long four minutes, isn't it? Tom interrupts. How much of you recall was from the recent elections? Uh, most of it, says Howard. Have you been to the States before? Asks Tom. Never, she says, shaking her head. No, we haven't, says Howard at the same time. Tom jokes that Australians are probably better at naming states in the US than the other way around. Everyone laughs. Fran and Howard are volunteers in the Australian Imaging, Biomarker and Lifestyle Study of Aging, ABLE, a longitudinal study of people who were over 60 in 2006. Over 1,100 participants have been screened and tested every 18 months. Cognition and mood, health and lifestyle, brain imaging, to identify biomarkers for the early detection of Alzheimer's disease. Among the aims of the ABLE project is to improve the early detection of dementia and of the disease which underlies it. Another way to put that aim, the one which interests us more, is to understand more about the many people whose brains, on post-mortem, show clear signs of Alzheimer's disease, but who have lived a pretty normal life without symptoms, without dementia. What are the sources of this cognitive reserve, as it's called, which may protect or buffer some against the disease? Some of the sources, 
we believe, are social. The able participants are volunteers, a pretty homogeneous sample of the suburban middle class is not that representative of the population as a whole. But it turns out that among the 700-odd participants classified as healthy controls with no incipient cognitive impairment, and who were open to further research participation, were 94 people who were couples. But they had never been tested as couples within the ABLE study, only as individuals. These couples travel into the city every 18 months of the ABLE study. They take a battery of standard clinical and cognitive tests of individual memory, which, they tell us, debriefing after our rather different session in their home, can leave them feeling puzzled and inadequate, even though they strongly believe in the value of contributing to medicine and science as participants in this way. Like many older people, they have real anxiety about memory decline. Fran says she always feels she should be good at their tests, but often isn't. I feel inadequate. I feel completely inadequate. Her husband responds, well, you don't need to. Oh, but I do. I do. What's happening here in the moment I described differs from the standard ABLE testing. Fran and Howard are in their own home. Their memory is being tested together, not individually. We record their conversations and interactions and later transcribe, code, analyze, quantify, interpret, discuss. Of the three researchers from our team, Amanda and Tom are here to undertake another small, slow step in what was then in 2016, a 10-year research program studying collaborative or shared remembering. In philosophically inspired cognitive psychology, our team tried to integrate theories of embodied and distributed cognition with an independent experimental tradition for studying collaborative recall, what happens when people remember together. In mainstream scientific opinion, remembering together does affect individual memory, but not for the good. Yes, a small group working together will recall more than any one individual, but surprisingly, a collaborating group remembers less than the same number of people would if they were left to work alone before pooling their results. This is collaborative inhibition, a surprisingly robust effect. And because memory is constructive, vulnerable to misinformation, many psychologists see other people as threats to its stability and accuracy. Witnesses are banned from discussing what they saw before they enter court, though police are not. We have experimental paradigms called memory conformity and memory contagion, as if other people are sources of contamination. The isolated individual mind has been treated as the gold standard in memory research. But in most such lab experiments, strangers take turn, remembering boring material in artificial settings with no shared goals. Real-world memory is not like that. So we study real groups with shared histories, rural firefighters, sports teams, siblings, twins, and most extensively, couples. Long-term couples, we've found, are among the established groups who sometimes show memory benefits for work, from working together. Other people form part of our rich systems of cognitive interdependence, alongside technologies, artifacts, and physical environments, in distributed cognitive ecologies. This cognitive interdependence can be a confluence of minds working together, not with each person having the same memories or cognitive skills, but with emergent qualities at the dyadic level, the couple level, the group level. Tweaking experimental designs and practices, we've tried to transform the cognitive psychology of collaborative memory from the inside out, not by wholesale revolution, but step by step, building bridges between controlled lab results and the everyday world and back again, repeatedly. Real groups instead of groups of strangers, remembering meaningful material, personally significant events like first dates and honeymoons, tapping a genuinely shared history, as well as remembering lists of words of European countries or the US states. Acknowledging the many different functions of remembering together beyond mere accuracy, beyond the mere quantity of recall. Identity sustaining, intimacy maintaining, playful reminiscence. And delving beneath the average numbers, which show that in general, collaborative inhibition is eliminated or reversed when couples remember their shared past together we tap the communicative microprocesses of remembering together.
We've tried to embrace this noise, the individual differences and the differences across couples and across tasks. Variation as a source of fascination, not to be ignored, dampened, ironed out. Though it's not easy to show, yes, some older couples do better remembering together than alone. Why? But not every couple does better when they collaborate, and not on every task. Why? So, back to this study and this moment. Two years before, the researchers tested Fran and Howard on a range of memory tasks individually. Then they returned a week later to test them together to see if collaboration, remembering together, helped or hindered their memory. And now they're back, it's a two-year follow-up, to see if the effects of collaboration they'd studied earlier are stable. So this is the third time Tom and company have come to these couples' homes. There's a comfort to it, alongside anxiety about performance on tests and about the risks of memory decline and dementia. But we had long been painfully aware how much was left out of the data we collect. We might be working in couples' homes, asking them about personally relevant things, as well as remembering damn lists of words. We talked a good game about the embodied and distributed nature of collaborative memory ecologies, but to build those bridges back to the robust experimental traditions, we were still excluding so many factors, so many resources people use in genuine everyday memory. It's not quite yet remembering in the wild. Some small steps. Before we return to Fran and Howard and what we began to call the Wisconsin moment, there's another researcher here to account for, Kath, with her two video cameras. In an ethnography of experimental psychology, we did not intend in critical mode to undermine the validity of the research, nor do we intend ebullient, uncritical adoption of the aims and results of this science. Rather, our ethnographic mode is interactive, a sometimes volatile inside-outside process, seeking new angles, expanding the unit of analysis, to include the settings and the experimenters, as well as the couples performing as participants. After Kath attended two testing sessions, the whole research team discussed her observations, the new video data, and what the ethnographic material can add to our standard coding of transcripts of the couple's words. When Howard cuts off Fran's suggestion, Wisconsin, and tells her firmly that he's working down the East Coast, it reads like a moment of shutdown. Fran interrupts her own approach to the task as a result. The team saw Fran's quietness in transcript and video as a withdrawal from the task and her fidgeting as nervousness, self-soothing. Across many of our studies, we've found some communication factors which help collaboration when couples are remembering together, others which hinder it. What helps is cross-cueing each other, repeating or elaborating on what your partner says. What hinders collaboration are disagreements about strategy, ignoring or correcting your partner, and assigning definite expertise to one person. These factors can indicate collaborative inhibition, some process loss in remembering together. It is hard to cross-cue each other to get at what's hidden or spread across two people's memories. This finding drove our initial consensus on the Wisconsin moment. The team point out that men often dominate in this task, taking it on themselves, confidently starting a list, operating on some geographic or idiosyncratic frame of their own. The women's potential contributions can be lost any unique knowledge that she has but he doesn't, not making it into the shared space. A deep and general problem in collaborative work. This task exacerbates the challenges. The couples know there's some target number in listing the US states, aware of how much below 50-odd they've got. Compared to the parallel, parallel task of listing all the countries of Europe, fewer of these upper-middle-class, predominantly Anglo-Celt, volunteer Australian couples have shared experience of traveling in the US. So there seems to be less open-ended exploration, joint elaboration, less playing together to find a shared strategy here. And yet, there is another compatible take. The other video, Reverse Angle, shows the couple's faces and emotions, their body language, differently in and after the Wisconsin moment. Fran turns toward Howard, touches him on the arm, and they share a laugh, mirror a smile, as if to say, of course that'd be your strategy. Analysis of the transcript alone, the words, doesn't show looks and interaction. 
comfort, acknowledgement, playful enjoyment, or how she's still monitoring, focused and engaged in the task. So yes, there's some shutdown, but that's not all. When we reverse the angle, there's more going on. Expertise is not always trouble. A cognitive division of labor makes good sense in many everyday contexts and for many tasks. A difference in strategy doesn't have to be a mismatch. In other contexts, couples are perfectly aware of their different skill sets. Two people don't always both need to know or remember the same stuff, whether it's practical or household information, the finances, the car, the devices, or significant shared history, how we got together, what those friends of ours are up to. At another point in the session, Howard says, I'm a thing person and Fran's a people person. In this test, when Howard mentions the states in the middle, Fran says, yeah, the ones where they all voted for Trump. She has a clear but different take on the US states. There is resilience built into this rich, long-lasting arrangement. In the footage from the other camera, we see Fran is not entirely shut out and shut down, that she remains engaged in what they both find an unnatural and difficult task. Later, Kath discusses the way they work together in ordinary life, in remembering and planning, in managing. Kath says, are you a system? Howard, it's not so much a system, it's a way we've developed our relationship. It wasn't a planned system, it just happened. The development of everyday memory strategies is largely tacit. It's just living in a shared world with many different strands. Even within this strange testing session, there are beneficial knock-on effects of the strategy that Howard imposes in the Wisconsin moment. When they're later asked to remember all countries in Europe together, this time they both adopt the strategy of working across the continent. Following Howard's lead, they move down from Scandinavia, naming Norway together in unison. They're more relaxed, complementary, following an almost identical joint strategy, only this time implicit, unnegotiated. Video data shows embodied interaction, the non-verbal communication between the couples. Howard and Fran chose to sit side by side, not around a table with the researchers. Were they a bit stiff and anxious? Or did their physical proximity support richer channels of interaction? At different points, nodding and murmuring and triggering and supporting each other's memories. A closer look at nonverbal interaction highlights the importance of considering participants' responses and strategies as situated, embodied and distributed. Where and how people choose to sit can have a marked impact on how they can or can't work together to do the tasks. This raises questions for future experiments. Should this be something that's controlled or prescribed? And if we consider the US and Euro tests together rather than separately, we can start to unpack the ways various strategies develop and fall throughout the testing. This gives us another thread to consider in the variance across results. What we're seeing here already is that how two individuals perform and the reasons for their success or failure for the variability over separate tests is far more than a function of mental skills alone. Analyzing these interviews through video helps us better pull out the dynamics of strategies as they form or change. Our team has talked a lot about enriching standard psychological methods by zooming in to the communicative microprocesses of remembering together, going down underneath averaged numbers for memory output across large numbers of couples. But with slower attention, to the many phases, events and experiences within a few four-minute test period, we see the temporal unfolding of the interactive process. Fran and Howard have periods of quieter, intimate and intermittent conversation. When they turn to each other to confer, less focused on the experimenter, their spatial location next to each other on the sofa helps them here. And then there are phases of acceleration, of faster turn-taking. The memory strategies used by individuals and couples are wildly diverse. There's always room for severe mismatch and breakdown. Finding a good way to work together or to live together need not be a matter of adjusting your own strategies so as to match or converge with your partners. There are many forms of cognitive interdependence which don't involve sharing where difference is maintained 
where the whole can be more than the sum of the parts just because the parts each contribute something different in the process. So the use of distinctive embodied and spatial strategies in memory is of particular interest to us. Howard is working down the East Coast. Kath notes their gaze, Howard looking mainly straight ahead and down, Fran ahead and across. Kath's field note says, there's a pause as he searches for the places he's looking for, filled in by the sound of the kitchen clock. At another point, Howard motions on a map in the air. They had been watching the US presidential election on TV the week before. The TV's in the room during the test, turned off, behind Kath's shoulder. We can't quite tell from the video whether or how much Howard is looking at it. Later, he mentions, what I saw on the television screen when we were listening to whether Trump got in or not. You see a map, often, presented on the screen with the state's names on it. Well, that's what I was working on. So, is Howard remembering what he saw on TV? Is he projecting onto it? What is it to have a mental map? Do we sometimes leave information out there in the world? In another task, describing a day from a trip, Howard uses his hands a lot to explain the layout and shapes of this place. Recalling lists of words, people often count on their fingers. Some couples who are recalling the countries of Europe rely on various books in their room. Discussing this with the team, Kath notes that the way the test is set up actually takes away most external scaffolding. This is curious, given our interest in embodied and material supports for memory. Howard and Fran rely on each other, yes, but on their own resources alone. They're not allowed to get up and fetch an atlas, as most of us would if we could. Another couple didn't go so well listing the countries of Europe, but they had 50-odd photos up out in their hallway. The man apologised for not remembering much, but said, if you let me go out there, I can tell you. Once he saw the pictures, he knew the countries. With more time, there'll be much more to say about the strange situation here. We can zoom out further to treat the whole experiment as our unit of analysis, including the experimenters, to look at other moments and other couples. So, how ethnographically useful or valid is it thus to have an external observer in on this experiment? Does this inside-outside observation and analysis, taking this collaborative re research on collaborative memory as our object of inquiry, does it serve to undermine or debunk the experimental ambition the arrogance of thinking we can pin down the mechanisms of shared remembering? Or, alternatively, are we simply falling into line, providing more grist to the objectifying mill of science, identifying yet more factors we can record, measure, code and quantify? Or maybe, to some extent, both. Thanks so much for that talk, John. There's all sorts of things to think about there uh, and it's going to be great to discuss some of those points with you. Uh, I think the first thing that I would like to ask you about is uh, the division of labour, as it were, within groups that are remembering together. Uh, the case study in your talk reminded me of a story I heard a few years ago, I, I think it was on a BBC podcast actually, about a couple in which the husband was famed for his phenomenal memory. Uh, I think he'd won various general knowledge quizzes. Uh, but the point was that in his in, in other aspects of his life, remembering his children's birthdays or, or what shopping needed to be bought, he was basically useless and he relied on his wife entirely uh, for that kind of information. And I think that's one of the most ordinary aspects of memory experience that we all go through. It's no news in a way that we act as external memory not just triggers, not just cues, but external memory systems for each other. Um, absolutely, in, in, in couples, this is maybe the most common thing, but it happens among work colleagues too. It happens among you know friends as well, that it's only when you get together with somebody else and you start chewing over old times or, or sitting down with a work colleague to look at a project again, that stuff comes flooding back to you. And it, right, it can cause trouble, right? I mean, I don't know in the case that you refer to whether the, the, the two people were okay with that division of labor. It, it, it's all about that, um, whether it's, you can agree to differ about what role you play in the memory system. So if one person is acting as the kind of external memory, as we might say, for, for the other, um, 
the, what's crucial there is the communication process. You know, when when the information is needed, can it be accessed, uh, or or is there a blockage, or is there some something unhappy? Another example that's very common is is the different ways that couples tell the story of how they got together. Right? You've probably experienced this often. I mean, it, it's it's an interesting thing to hear from from a couple. Sometimes the two partners will have different stories to tell, right? Um, about, you know, oh, one person says it was this, another person says, no, no, I hadn't met you by then. Um, but often, you know, and when all is going well, they might say, well, we agree to differ about this. I know you say it happened that way, but I know it happened this way. What's more of an issue, I guess, is, is if there isn't that higher level acceptance of the different stories or of the different division of labor, if there's a kind of clash, what I call in lecture, a kind of disagreement about strategy. Um, that the, the, the individuals in question are not okay with the way that their memories are distributed. You've talked mainly today about how other people are involved in remembering, uh, but I know you're also interested in how objects and spaces are involved in, in these ecologies of memory. And we were talking before this recording uh, about another podcast in this series that I've done uh, where I spoke to uh, Professor Ed Hollis about memory and architecture and the way interior design mediates the past in the present uh, in ways that are sometimes extraordinary but other times very banal uh, but in those cases perhaps all the more important to the individual. In a slightly different way you came you came close to this idea of interiors aiding memory in your talk uh, with the man in the experiment who used photographs to stimulate, I think, listing European countries. And I was wondering what the cognitive scientist in you was thinking when you listened to Ed's talk. Oh, I, I, I just love that material. It's such, such, such a great podcast and a, and a great talk by Ed. And I'm, I'm going to go off and, and, and read his books now. So I mean, just thank you for bringing uh, his work to our attention. Um, I'm completely obsessed with the role of architecture and, and place in, in memory. And it's a, an area where um, interaction between architects and, and environmental um, researchers needs to happen more with, with psychologists and, and philosophers. I mean, of course, there is work. There are environmental psychologists who study this, but not necessarily picking up on the kind of richness um, of the environments that, that Ed was talking about. Um, with with the the case of photos, then yes, absolutely. I mean, I I've I've talked um, written sometimes before about the notion of the cognitive life of things that certain things can can be so much built into our our systems of of um, using the past or accessing the past, often with the way we want to feel about the past. So photographs or pieces of music, of course are things that we use to kind of regulate our emotions. Um, we, we will come back to look at that photo on the mantelpiece if we're feeling a, a little sad, or if I want to sort of G myself up and feel get a little bit momentum into my day, there's a, obviously a few tracks of music I will use. So these are things that they're not just external on the views I have, but they, they can become part of my own memory system. And so yes, places in general and, and buildings in particular and, and uh, interior design can very much be, be part of that kind of system. It, it reminded me of some work um, I was lucky enough to be invited along to, to talk to some archaeologists um, recently uh, about work going on at a, a dig in Turkey, um, Çatalhöyük, which was one of the first, um, I guess, um, large-scale settlements that uh, human beings uh, lived together in much larger numbers than in the earlier hunter-gatherer um, uh, communities and groups. And um, it's an incredibly interesting um case to look at from a memory point of view. Um, people lived literally on top of their ancestors. They built their houses um, one layer on top of another. And the memories, in a sense, were right there under their feet. Um, the, the archaeologists have found very specific and precise um, holes being dug down to access, for example, the skull of an ancestor or a particular piece of artwork from a place underneath. And so there's a case in which that that kind of interior design um, in these very early human settlements was one of the first engines um, of social memory. Completely fascinating case. And I, I think that psychologists and, and, and philosophers of mine too have kind of shied away, I guess, often from the, the concrete details of particular environments in particular cultural situations. And it's one of the things I, I really try to 
um, shift and to encourage my students to say that our, our abstract ideas, these quite general ideas say about, you know, things can be part of our memory. It's all very well to say, but it has to do some work. It has to do some explanatory work in coming out to some independently motivated phenomenon in the world that comes from our study of architecture or archaeology or, or sport or music or whatever it is. And you've got to help people who care about those things understand what's happening there in a slightly different way because of the cognitive theory we're bringing. And so it's this idea of other people and objects and places uh, being involved in individuals' processes of cognition that you refer to in the title of your talk, Distributed Ecologies of Memory. Uh, and I was wondering if you could maybe give a little bit of background on this idea of uh, extended mind or, as I think you prefer it, uh, distributed cognition. Yeah, so... Uh, the idea that mind and memory more specifically can sometimes uh, be a hybrid thing, which is partly internal, partly neural, partly in the brain, partly bodily, but also partly external in the world, in other people, in the cases we've been talking about, or in objects like, like music or in my mobile phone, perhaps, um, can be part of my memory um, on my view. So these are ideas that I think maybe half of the people you talk to say, well, that's obvious. Like, it's it's no big deal. Of course, if you take away my mobile phone, it's not just theft. You've actually taken away part of my mind. For other people, it's crazy, right? It seems obvious to many people that the mind is in the head. I'm somewhere in there behind my eyes. That That's where the, the core of my agency is. And, you know, in some versions that might be be connected to a soul, but more commonly now, it's it's the brain. That's where the mind is. That's where the location of memory processes is. And so that view, that, I mean, I would call that a kind of internalist view to say that mind and memory are purely and completely internal to inside the skull. That's a view that we're, we're targeting. And so to, to answer your question about the kind of sources of the um, attempt to, to undermine that idea, um, it's been the biggest change in the history of the cognitive sciences, I guess, um, since the 1980s, but more fully from the 1990s, a kind of internal movement in the cognitive sciences to, um, to, to question, to query, and to come up with alternatives to that internalist view and to suggest that mind is, is deeply situated, that the, the, both the body and the environment, and by the environment I mean both the physical world, places, but also the social and, and cultural environment, can literally be, in some circumstances, a, a constitutive part of our memories and mental lives. Now, in making these cases, of course, cognitive scientists have drawn on a whole array of other ideas coming out of, of anthropology, Gregory Bateson's ideas about the ecology of mind, Ed Hutchins was the anthropologist who wrote a book called Cognition in the Wild in the 90s, very important in this. Um, the, the psychologist James Gibson had an ecological approach to perception that, that perceptual information is kind of there in the, in the world, it's not in, in the head. So there were a lot of influences there which um, were picked up into philosophy and cognitive science, I guess, um, by a number of, of people in the, the late 90s. One of them, just to pick one, is Andy Clark, who worked for, for, for many years at Edinburgh University, his book being there. 1997 book, um, being there, putting brain, body and world together is, is possibly still the source I would direct people to as the, the best introduction to this kind of distributed or extended view. And I guess nowadays the the, the proof is in the pudding. Um, it's still a controversial view, both in terms of its scientific utility and in philosophy about, you know, the ontology about how really can mind and memory straddle brain, body and world. But it's made a real difference to a whole array of research projects across the disciplines. There are applications of this kind of extended or distributed thinking in so many different areas, in education, um, in, in medicine, um, in, in politics and ethics increasingly, as well as in the kinds of areas we've just been talking about in architecture, say, or archaeology. So that's what makes the difference. And for me, it's it's a, a just a, a way of inviting interdisciplinary interaction and, and of, of saying, let's see what's happening across these boundaries. Memory itself right, is so complicated, it doesn't stay within any single discipline. So you have to respect it. You have to respect the phenomenon. Um, I, I often say, you know, you've got to be, you've got to follow the topic that you're interested in, not any single tradition. And that, that will take you where you need to go. And finally, I'd like to come back to something you said earlier on in this podcast, uh, when I asked about whose memory you study and how. Uh, your response was overtly pluralistic. Uh, you study multiple kinds of memory, 
multiple people's memory, in different contexts and in different ways. And you said that the most interesting bit was studying how those different kinds of memory fit together. And so I suppose I wanted to ask, do you think it's useful that we have so many phenomena grouped together under the singular term memory? I think that's a really good question. And I think we all get a bit irritable or frustrated sometimes at the complete lack of bounds um, to the, the concept across academic disciplines and in popular culture, right? Um, it's hard to rule anything out of our domain as, as memory researchers. Um, so that's why I was saying, you know, it's important to make distinctions under the, the umbrella heading of memory. Um, I don't think the word memory has a single meaning. I certainly don't believe in the need for a definition of it before we start doing interesting work and have interesting conversations about it. Um, in ordinary life, of course, it may differ across cultures and across languages, but we know roughly what we're talking about when we talk about remembering. Um, and then as researchers, we want to go in looking both at concrete everyday instances of the activities of remembering in, in real life, but also um, look at the different kinds of memory that, that are up. Um, people's autobiographical remembering of how we tell the story of our lives in different ways, in different contexts, um, but also um, the kinds of, of procedures and embodied memories that I mentioned, which um, I guess come under, in my understanding, the, the topic of skill. So I study skill memory a lot, which is maybe the easiest answer to the question of whose whose memories do I study. So in that part of my my work, we look at the the memories, for example, of of sports people and sports teams, um, or of musicians who've played in a band together for many years, or or of dancers. And in these cases, these people with extraordinary levels of expertise, they're not just skilled bodies. Um, their, their, their bodies are so deeply mindful and their memories of all kinds have to work together, not just remembering how to play a song or to play a shot in, in, a, in a sporting context, but calling on their entire history of expertise working at, um, at elite levels. So that's one example of people with a particular history um, both a particular history of, of, of collaboration um, and also a particular history of, of using their past for current purposes. I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this episode of the Connecting Memories podcast. A huge thank you to today's guest speaker, Professor John Sutton. It's been fantastic to have you on the show, John. Thanks so much for sharing your ideas with us and for talking with me about memory. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. For more information about Connecting Memories and for news of all future episodes, please visit connectingmemories.org. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Connecting Memories podcast series. Thanks for listening. And goodbye.